Welcome back to Body Talk with Bex. This week, I have a wonderful conversation with a woman named Jada. She was born with cloacal hextrophy and um, has quite an incredible story. And I really enjoyed hearing her stories and how she hasn't let it hold her back at all. You know, being able to travel and have a family, really a great inspiration. So let's just jump right on in this week. meeting with me. I've been pretty excited to talk to you for a couple of different reasons, but yeah. So you have bladder extrophy as well. So I have cloacal extrophy, which is really similar to bladder extrophy. I think it's like one notch higher on like the severity ranking. Do you know what the difference is? Yeah. So I think uh, what I would say, the main difference between bladder extrophy and cloacal extrophy is everybody with cloacal extrophy has bladder extrophy, but they also have some additional things like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but how I understand it is people with bladder extrophy, mostly their just their urinary system is affected and then sometimes reproductive system as well, mm-hmm. where cloacal extrophy is like a lot more severely your reproductive system your like pelvis, your spine, and always your like colorectal uh, system as well. So, you know, in addition to the pee problems and the like women problems, we have poop problems too. No. <laughs> I know it's so fun. Oh, wow. And so did you have everything affected then, like including the spine? I didn't realize the spine could be a problem as well. So the spine's really, really common. I actually am the only that I'm aware of right now recorded case of cloacal extrophy that had no tethered cord at birth. Most people with cloacal extrophy have like a tethered cord, which is like the the nerves going through your spine, kind of not the way they're supposed to be kind of tangled towards the base and it causes a lot of mobility issues. Mm -hmm. The surgeon that I had when I was young, Dr. Hendren, who just passed away really tragically, He actually did a whole speech where he said, and every recorded case of cloacal extrophy actually, except for one, like it threw him off guard. And my mom like showed me the speech when I was older. And she was like, you were the one that like really threw him off guard here because you're the only one he'd ever seen that didn't have this. Wow. That's pretty crazy. I mean, lucky for you, but that's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's very cool. So I had all of the like plastic bladder extrophy things like the, what's it called? An omethyseal where all the organs are on the outside and the very, very small kind of pieced apart bladder. And in addition to that, I also had like my pelvis fully split open. So my legs were at my side, like a little froggy, like a T-shaped baby. Um, Yeah. And I had imperfect anus, which is when your colon doesn't connect through to your rectum. So there's just no opening at all. And also I had two full reproductive systems, which have had like a hot mess of repairs on them, like throughout my childhood. But wow. Yeah. So it's pretty involved, but I'm doing great now. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Uh, 
I've actually only had a couple surgeries, which is pretty like incredible. I, I think that my medical team is some of the best in the world. A lot of people with comparable conditions have had like, you know, like many, many, many surgeries and I've only had four. That's not bad. Yeah. Which is pretty good for, uh, and they, and they were all done before I was five years old. So that's pretty solid medical history for somebody with pretty severe birth defects. Yeah. Did your parents know beforehand that you were going to come out with a few problems or was it kind of unawares? <laughs> uh, kind of ish. So I was born in 96 and, you know, obviously the like images weren't as good as they are today, mm-hmm. but they could see that there was a little something wrong, but they weren't sure what it was. They thought it might just be like a belly button hernia or something along those lines. So they knew that there was like a little something wrong. So they scheduled a C-section just to be on the safe side. But then once I came out, they were immediately like, oh, no, this is this is not what we had signed up for today. Like and they had to helicopter me to the nearest larger hospital. Wow. Yeah. And was this down in, in Florida or? Yeah. So I was born in Florida. I was born in Sarasota. They bay flighted me after like stabilizing me and diagnosing me to all children's hospital in St. Pete, which is a really stellar hospital where I had my first one or two surgeries. And then from there, my mom did like crazy research. She wanted to find like only the best people in the whole wide world for the job. So she, after like interviewing, she almost like reverse interviewed. She'd be like, what are you going to bring to the table for my child? Like, I don't trust you people. She like went and flew all over the country to meet people in person and wrote all of these letters. She still has boxes of them. So she ended up with Dr. Hendren and the whole team at Boston Children's Hospital. And they did a bang up job on me. And I don't really trust anybody else to go anywhere near me because they don't know what they're looking at. Yeah. Good for her. Good mom looking out for you. Oh, yeah. She was a superstar for sure. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's like before Google when you could easily like research, you know? Oh, my God. I can't even imagine the research. She was like reading medical textbooks, having doctors refer her to doctors. She was only 20 years old. I was her first kid. Like she was caught totally unawares. Was this whole like I give her a lot of credit for like how good my life is because of the like extreme effort she put forward from like day one. Yeah. That's wow. She was young to have to handle that too. Oh, I know. I can't even imagine. I just had my kid at what was I like 24 at the time. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like I can't even fathom insane. Talk about growing up fast. (laughs) Yeah, really? Welcome to motherhood. Bam. (laughs) Here you go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Can you maybe take us through chronologically, if you can, just kind of different things that you've been through and experienced? Like, I don't know if you know a little bit about the surgeries that you've had. I know it would be kind of hard to actually remember what they were since you were so young, but I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I got it. I got it. I got the the new doctor info meeting. No problem. Okay. Um, so what I believe happened was... Uh, initially they did a closure they closed they like do a really interesting like gravity thing where they like keep your organs in like a they like elevate your body like your lower body and they kind of like keep your organs in a sack thing and slowly like lower them back into your abdomen and like shift them into the place over the course of a couple hours there so they they re-closed my organs and so once they got me all closed and situated 
immediately they were like, okay, well, she doesn't have like any rectal opening. That's like clearly the most urgent problem. So what they did, because we weren't at like any kind of super specific specialty center at the time, they just did a colostomy bag for me, which made the most sense when I was really little. So I had a colostomy bag until I was about two years old. And then my mom heard about all these different uh, like alternative options where you could get it reversed. And she was determined to have that for me. So I could have like the most typical anatomy like situation that she could pull together for me. A bunch of different doctors said that they wouldn't do a pull through on me. And she didn't stop until she found one that said yes. So they did a pull through for me. And it has been like such an amazing blessing. A pull through is basically where they create like they they just literally pull your guts back through where your rectum should be to make like a man-made uh, anus and so the problem with that being that they can make the rectal opening but they can't manufacture nerves or or muscles that don't exist so like obviously like a sphincter like I have no muscle control I have no sensation feeling of when I need to go to the bathroom which is obviously a huge problem in terms of accidents and things like that. So what I do is rectal enemas and they just keep me regular and it actually keeps my body like trained. Obviously there's mishaps here and there and it's not a perfect system, but every couple of days I just do a rectal enema and it keeps my whole like bowels managed and me really confident and able to just live my life like easily. And then in terms of my bladder, I have a metrophenol stoma capping system, which I think is pretty common for people with extra fee these days. I think it's the most popular choice and I love it. I mean, I know a lot of people have complications with theirs, but I think mine's like the most efficient Mitrofanoff capping that's ever been made. I've had no problems with it my whole life. It's so convenient. It's so wonderful. What else? They closed my pelvis with like a wrap around my legs and they, so I would say that Despite all of these many different like birth defects coming together into this one, like when I was a little kid, everybody was worried about like the poop and the pee was going to be like a big traumatic thing. But to be honest, the thing that has like been the hardest my whole life, probably from here on out has been like the reproductive health issues, which are pretty significant. And I think are oftentimes not talked about enough because it's awkward, especially when you're talking to the parents of a child who was literally just born. Like, how are you going to address your newborn infant's future sex life? Right. Kind of like a taboo, awkward thing to talk about. And because of that, I think that a lot of surgeons, and I've noticed especially like old man surgeons, don't do a good enough job on these baby girls and these very young girls. So basically I was born with two reproductive systems in their entirety, internal and external, like two uteruses, four ovaries, two sets of tubes, two full vaginas, like next to each other. And they chopped out the middle, slapped them together and called it a Frankengina and said, good enough. (laughs) I like your name for it. (laughs) Yes, yes. She's not pretty, but she gets the job done. (laughs) So those were all the major surgeries I had when I was a small child. Sorry, I'm just kind of rambling because I don't know. No, that's okay. I think that's a great start. So why don't we, so with the enemas, does that, does that mean that like you kind of just go on like a regular schedule? 
So, yeah, when I was a little kid, I had to do them like every single night. And I know that everybody has a different experience with them. And for some reason, when I was little, it took me like an hour on the toilet every night. And it was like pretty uncomfortable and awkward. But now I've like streamlined the process after a lifetime of figuring this out. It only takes like 15, 20 minutes and it's definitely uncomfortable, but it's definitely like gives me the like independence and freedom I need in my life. And I think they're so amazing that even my friends and family with no medical issues, I give them enemas all the time. They ask me if they get bloated, if they have a special occasion the next day, if they're super backed up, they'll ask me like, what do you use that you like think so highly of? And I'll send them a link and I'll walk them through it. And they always are like, well, that sucks. But you know what? You're right. As soon as I was done, I feel so good. So energized. Like I can do yoga or something and you can just feel like really confident the rest of the day that this issue is like no longer a part of your day. Awesome. Can you send me the link when we're done here? Totally. Yeah. I actually use a kind of a unique one that I think is obviously like mandatory for me, but useful for anybody. So the thing about rectal enemas that a lot of people don't like is like you have to hold it in the whole time but I don't have a sphincter right so that would obviously become messy anytime I've ever tried to use a typical enema kit Mm -hmm. so the one I use has what's called an anal retention nozzle Uh, basically you like squeeze a little squeezy and it blows up a small bubble in your booty when you stick the tube in and you like cork it so it stays there so it holds the water in for you so you don't have to worry about it at all you can do it sitting up on the toilet like no stress no mess no like anxiously like positioning yourself and it's just super duper convenient I can totally send you the link to that awesome yeah I love collecting resources to be able to share with people so definitely I'm your girl for that yeah especially if you speak of it so highly that you share with other people oh yeah you don't even have to have imperfect anus. I think you should just try one. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so you, do you cath out a system then as well? I know most people do. Yeah, I cath out of um, a metropinoff stoma. It's on my abdomen. A metropinoff catheter, back in the day, they weren't doing them really like these days. I think all the people that have them have these like precious little things that you can't even see hidden in their belly buttons and they're like super cutesy and I'm like super bitter because they didn't have those I don't have a belly button at all mine is like a red stoma you can see and I wear a band-aid over and it's a little bit on my right side like where my waistline is kind of going back to what I was saying about like old man doctors not thinking about like women's futures past just fixing this immediate problem right I really like much 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 lower it's like in right on my waistline like it doesn't need to be like aesthetically they could have made it easier to hide under clothing it's really uncomfortable if I just throw on a pair of pants without a band-aid really quickly and you can always see it if it's like anything even somewhat low rise but the the system works wonderfully I use a 16 gauge French male tip catheter with the orange end, which is like the biggest one. Everybody is always like disturbed at how large that like catheter gauge is. But I personally recommend it really highly to gauge up your catheter as high as you can. And the reason I recommend this, even though it's uncomfortable and the worst like thing to do ever process is because in the end, one, peeing with a really tiny catheter gauge takes forever. It takes like a million years Two your P 
people who have augmented bladders, like most of us do, typically have a bunch of mucus and sediment in the bladder, and it can get clogged and problematic in the skinny catheter. Since my catheter is so thick, I almost never have this problem. It passes right through really easily. And I almost never, maybe like once every couple months, will I bother irrigating because so much of it comes out like a lot of that sediment problem I don't seem to have. That's a really good point. Using the larger gauge would clear that out. I hadn't even thought of that. And if we, if you're asking my random thoughts about yeah. bladder occupations, a lot of people I feel like have really frequent problems like complications, UTIs and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the scientific evidence to back this up. So don't call me a doctor on this one. But I'm convinced that the reason that I have almost never had any UTIs my entire life is because the doctors used what is, I guess, now considered like an old-fashioned technique of putting a gastric patch on my bladder, which is putting a little bit of stomach tissue in addition to the intestine to augment and enlarge it. Mm -hmm. And what the stomach tissue does is it keeps acting as stomach tissue and it produces like digestive stomach acid which has like a pro and a con. The pro is I am absolutely convinced it burns away all of the bacteria and prevents me from almost ever getting infections, which many people suffer from chronically. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is it does cause like an severe like heartburn sensation in my bladder. But the good news is there's an easy cure they make medicine to just immediately fix it. Or even just if you mix a little spoonful of baking soda in water and take it like in a shot glass, the the basicness of the baking soda neutralizes the acid in your bladder. And like within a couple minutes, the problem's fixed. So for me, I would take that over having chronic infections any day. Some doctors are convinced that the gastric patch leads to a slight increase in like bladder cancer in the future. Mm -hmm. But there's like a big schism of thought here because there actually hasn't been a a ton of research to prove that. That's like a plausible, maybe it happened a couple of times that they don't have very much actual research into it thing. Right. So they've been backing away from doing that technique a lot currently, but I kind of wish they'd put more research into it because if that's not the case, which hopefully it's not, you know, for my case, I think it would help a lot of people out. Right. Interesting. And that's a gastric patch. Yeah, stomach tissue in the bladder augmentation. Versus just... Just like intestines, I think is what they otherwise use. Is that what you would call it? Yeah. Intestinal? Um, yeah, we use small and large intestine. I don't think they use anything else. just writing it down so that I can look it up myself and do my own research because I, yeah. I like to <laughs> Okay, so... You cat, you do the enemas. What else do you have to do that's kind of like on your weekly or daily schedule that's, I guess, medical related? I mean, do you take medications or anything like that? I take no medications, blessedly. I'm super glad I don't have to take any medications at all. Wow. I know I'm telling you, my doctors did a bang up job. I'd recommend the team at uh, Boston Children's and Dr. Borer for urology to anyone who was looking for a second opinion, a first opinion, <laughs> anything. I mean, honestly, I, I, I wouldn't go nowhere else. They're wonderful. And the thing that I really like about them is that the last time I was there, I hadn't been since I was like a teenager and I was really anxious because 
obviously this is a children's hospital and I'm walking in here as like a 20 something year old woman. I'm nervous. They're going to, you know, say you're too old, like good luck out there. Right. But what they told me, which was like a huge relief was that they'll actually see me until I'm, and I think this goes for any patients till I'm 35, which was a huge relief. And then they actually are connected like via hospital pedestrian bridge to the partnering adult hospital. I think it's Brigham women's hospital, another adult hospital directly across the street. And all of the surgeons at Austin children's are, what is it like registered have rights at the adult hospital as well. So they can actually continue seeing you from birth to whenever the only difference is after you're 35, they just see you in the room across the street. That's amazing. Doctor, Isn't that amazing? It really has provided me with a lot of relief if I ever need any significant care again, because like finding a new doctor, as we all know, is just a freaking nightmare. Yeah, that's amazing. I wish every children's hospital had that available. I think they all should because these children are going to grow. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen to us later? Yeah. I remember when I was 18 and I had to have a surgery at the children's hospital with my surgeon I'd grown up with. And I had like to fill out a form stating that like, I knew I was an adult or whatever and still wanted to be seen by him and all that jazz. But you said Boston children's hospital. And what was the doctor's name? Dr. Borer, B-O-R-E-R. He's the urologist and his whole team is phenomenal. And the colorectal surgeon there that's wonderful is Dr. Belinda Dickey, D-I-C-K-I-E. She is like a super badass feminist, like very Dr. Christina Yang vibes, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Really cool lady. Definitely knows what she's doing. And when she looked at my medical record, she said, some old man did this to you, didn't they? We'll fix this. (laughs) Love it. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So what kind of, or have you had any problems with the reproductive side of things? So yes and no, right? Like it's hard to say, like, obviously I've had problems. There's like severe, like scar tissue and nerve damage on both like the inside and the outside of my body will probably never go away. And the unfortunate thing is, as I think a lot of people who've had a lot of surgeries know, there's like really only so much they can do about it, right? Like all they can really offer are like, you know, different like therapies, like stretches and physical therapy type things that when they start describing it to you, you're like, well, I mean, I don't really know if there's enough stretches in the world to fix like years worth of scar tissue damage or they can offer you more surgery, which could either completely fix it or run the risk of making it completely worse. So it's a total gamble and it's kind of not awesome, not ideal. So it's kind of one of those hard things that's both like, it causes a lot of like self-esteem issues, right? And physical issues as well. Like it can be pretty uncomfortable. However, I don't want to sound ungrateful because my, my whole life, I was told like, eh, odds aren't looking great. Like for fertility, we've never actually had a case with cloacoextrophy that like any of my surgeons had heard of, uh, like conceive any children or anything like that. So when I found out I was pregnant, it was a huge, huge, huge shock to me. And when I called them to ask what I could expect, all the doctors I called literally said, 
oh, wow, uh, you you tell us. Like, can you send us your scans and stuff for research purposes? We, we've never heard of this ever happening before. Wow. So it was like a super big shock and a huge miracle, but also extremely stressful. Yeah. <laughs> like, grateful that my body decided to pull together and make this happen for me at all. But like new territory to like figure out what the hell's going on couldn't find anybody to take on my case it was so complicated I didn't have a doctor until I was 30 weeks pregnant who would accept my case and I had the baby at 35 weeks so I'd only seen the doctor twice wow yeah I was actually rejected by every single obstetrician in my town's county that's insane yeah it was super super scary I have so many issues with that (laughs) Not as many as I did. I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Did anyone give you referrals of like, maybe this person will be able to take your case? So that's why it took all the way up to 30 weeks. Someone would be like, oh, don't worry. Um, My colleague takes very, very high risk cases like this should. I'm sure they'll take it. Then I'd have to wait, you know, two or three weeks till they could get me in for mandatory introductory thing right then i just show up to the meeting for them to be like we just read your medical history right now and we've decided we can't take this it's too much of a liability so sorry we don't have like the experience necessary but let us refer you to this person and you'll wait another two or three weeks to meet this person and i went through that whole process with just about everybody in town until finally the only person who was seeing me was maternal fetal medicine who don't deliver babies they just refer you to people right And blessedly, this patient angel of a woman was like, I am going to find you somebody to take this baby out of you because it's can't stay in there forever, buddy. And I'm just having like panic attacks the whole time. So she said, ultimately, that and and this is kind of for anybody in any with any kind of rare medical condition. If you're ever in a situation like that, where you can't find medical care that a will accept you or B is qualified to accept you or C you feel comfortable or confident with Mm -hmm. your best bet is to go to the nearest teaching hospital. That's connected to a major like medical school Mm -hmm. because they, they have the, the, all the resources they need. They, they usually have like much more qualified experts. The hospital has much fancier and more equipped facilities. And also most importantly, they're going to view your case as like an exciting opportunity for growth and learning, like a challenge they want to tackle as opposed to like a liability that they're going to get sued for. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So I ended up getting seen by the USF Health, the the like U- University of Southern Florida medical research team in uh, at Tampa General Hospital, which is like an hour away from me. So it was annoying to travel it, but it was absolutely worth the like much, much, much better care. Yeah. And the lady that found you, the person to go to, to see the obstetrician, what, what was her role? Oh, maternal fetal medicine, maternal fetal medicine and, and M MFM doctor. So basically what maternal fetal medicine does and anybody with extrophy that that ends up pregnant will see maternal fetal medicine. They do things like anatomy scans. They look at high risk cases, both in terms of if it's the baby or the mother, and they just make sure that you have all the resources you need. They do initial diagnoses, super, super in-depth scans of the baby really periodic monitoring because the average woman that has absolutely like no particular risk at all 
only gets to see the OBGYN like maybe like five times the whole pregnancy and they only get an ultrasound like two to three times. I had like 15 to 20 ultrasounds. Like they were keeping a really close eye on this baby because it was like a really complicated situation. Yeah. Yeah. So maternal fetal medicine, she was a rock star. Perfect. And they're going to be like your first point person, probably. First line of ever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, in any kind of situation like that. It's so frustrating that none of the other obstetricians like read your file ahead of time, like when you first got referred to them. So instead of waiting several weeks, like they would have read it right away and be like, oh, I don't know if I can handle that. To refer you to someone else, like right away, get the ball rolling, especially on something time sensitive. That's exactly. And I'd be on the phone trying to insist. I need you to get me in sooner. Like you don't understand. Just read the paper and then you'll understand. One woman, I literally waited so long in the room, waited over an hour in the room. She finally walks in and says, well, I just decided to crack open your, she literally told me this. I just decided right now to crack open and peruse your medical history. And I didn't realize the paperwork I was about to be receiving. And so, you know, I gave it a, a, a really thorough skim and I figured that I didn't need anything earlier than the past 10 years. And I said, yeah, you do. When you have a birth defect, it's actually the very first things that are the literal most important things to see. Like if you saw nothing else, you could have skipped the past 10 years. The first 10 were much more important here. Well, and even how do the words thorough and skim go in the same sentence together? There's nothing thorough about skimming someone's file. Yeah. This woman was one of the worst bedside manners I've ever experienced in my life. She didn't ask my fiance's name. He, she referred to him as my, my male sexual partner the whole time we were there. Yeah. It was a really strange encounter that I hope nobody ever has to have again. I'm so sorry. It's fine. <laughs> it worked out in the end. Yeah. Like, as long as you can laugh at it later, I guess, in high school. Oh, yeah. But it was way later that we were laughing. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, after you found an obstetrician... <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any other complications or hopefully it was fairly smooth sailing? It was honestly smoother than I expected it to be, but I wouldn't say that it was like perfect by any means. Right. So I, the pregnancy for the most part, the whole time was pretty fine. I did have some trouble with like when my stomach was getting bigger, my, my like internal scar tissue and my like external scars. My whole abdomen is basically one large scar straight down the middle. Yeah. It was so tight. It was so, 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 so uncomfortable. And the bottom started kind of splitting open a little bit. It was like, and everybody I would ask about this would just be like, oh, you just need to put lotion on it every night. And I'd be like, I don't think it's that kind of a thing. Like, I don't think the lotion is going to help my like stitches from my whole life are like tearing at the seams. It was freaking me out. And it was so, 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 so uncomfortable. So it was just generally really like not comfy and where I'd needed to do enemas every like, well, I can ordinarily I'll do them every like three nights or something like that. I was almost having to do them like every single day, if not twice a day, because I was so uncomfortable and my, I was having trouble getting my catheter in. 
I had to start using like the lubrication every single time, which I've never had to use before in my whole life just because it was getting like so tight. So the main complication I had was, well, for one thing, the baby was born five weeks early and it was because of go figure, like a completely normal person problem. Yeah, like completely unrelated. I had preeclampsia, really high blood pressure during pregnancy, which apparently can lead to like seizures and death. So they were like, well, we need to take the baby out. I just showed up for like a totally regular like ultrasound checkup. And they were like, oh, well, uh, we're going to take the baby out right now, <laughs> okay. which uh, led to like severe panic attacks. And the other big issue was I had a ovarian cyst that had grown to be almost the size of the baby. It was huge. It was like twins, kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Except minus the twin. (laughs) Yeah, minus the twin. (laughs) So they just put me, well, one, I was having like panic attacks because this was like really stressful for me, obviously. And I have, they diagnosed me during the birth with like, like PTSD, like medical extreme trauma, because I was having such seriously extreme like anxiety and panic attacks like hyperventilating all this stuff and also since they were going to have to do surgery to remove the mask at the same time as the baby they just went ahead and put me under general anesthesia which is generally not recommended for a c-section but like for me it was absolutely the best thing for me probably physically and definitely mentally and emotionally just because of that ptsd it's Oh, yeah. Was a really strange situation because I hadn't actually been in the hospital for anything major since I was a very small child. So I didn't realize how like repressed and deep these feelings had been shoved down. But like immediately upon being admitted and like knowing I was going to have to go back to the OR again, like Mm -hmm. sent some crazy fight or flight responses that like I did not expect to come up. It was really, really just a traumatic situation overall. But Luckily, they conked me out. They gas masked me down and I woke up empty of baby. <laughs> the The nurse who woke me up was really sweet. I said, is the baby okay? She said, the baby's fine. He's in the NICU, but he's fine. I said, do I? Do you have a picture of him? She said, no, but I do have a picture of your, of your tumor if you want to see that. <laughs> okay. I was like, huh, I guess that's better than nothing. Did you look <laughs> like, at it? <laughs> Oh yeah, I still have the picture. I, I took a picture of her picture for sure. Um, uh, so I woke up freaking out, and uh, the baby was okay. He just couldn't breathe because he was born asleep because of the anesthesia, and because he was so early, his lungs were a little underdeveloped still. But he's totally okay now. He spent just under three weeks in the NICU, which was really tough for me to it was like a really difficult recovery it was like a good three four hour surgery and it felt like I'd been hit by a truck and then like the emotions that come with it and all like now your milk's coming in and it was also the middle of COVID so nobody could be there it was just me and luckily they did let my fiance in he was like a superhero running back and forth the NICU was nowhere close to my room but like my parents couldn't be there or any family or anything it was just really difficult and I had to go home without the baby which was really sad that is, is can be traumatizing really traumatizing and sad and then I had to like wake up every day like physically not recovered and like drag myself out of bed drive the hour to visit the baby and then back every single day it was it was really difficult but 
it's over now. Yeah. <laughs> it ended up okay in the end. And he didn't, you know, people can tell me a hundred million times that extrophy is not like in any way genetic, but like to see the baby come out with like a fully skinned abdomen, huge relief. Just, just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Although I will say that this is something that I think a lot of people don't know. Uh, we actually have a like Facebook group for parents with extra fee who have children of any kind, like biologically or not. But upon like chatting with these other parents, we noticed a common trend, which was really interesting. When Coda, my son, was born, they told me that he had like, what would I call it? Like a genital malformation, which I was immediately like, is this a sick joke right now? Like everybody told me this was not in any way a genetic condition. Like how could I have passed a, like, you know, a genital malformation down to my child and a parent, he has hypospadias, which is kind of like your urethra is not in the uh, location on the penis. It usually is like on the tip of the head. It's actually could be located like anywhere else on the penis on the underside. And his is pretty far down, like closer to the base than the tip. And I actually have found that this is really, really, really common in extra fee parents to have sons for some reason, not daughters, but sons with like slight, like not nearly as severe, obviously, but slight genital malformations, specifically hypospadias, which somebody found out through genetic testing that there is a potential slight genetic factor it's called the MTFR gene. I can send you the link to the article later because I thought it was super, super interesting to learn about the potential genetic link. And it is basically a gene that can affect anything that is a, I want to say it's called a tubal birth defect, um, which is a bunch of different things. It could be extrophy. It could be spina bifida. It could be a wide umbrella of genital malformations. And it, there actually is a significant potential genetic link. Hmm. And I've noticed that it is really common for, for us extra free women to pass it down. So I think we need more research about it. Absolutely. Yeah. And because when I brought it to the doctors, they were like, we've never heard of this. I showed them the article and they were like, I don't know what you're showing me. Um, because I kind of feel like it was a hospital, like quick, you know, like quick turnaround setting, but I thought that it was really interesting and it's really a common link, but if you are planning a pregnancy, there is like a secondary prenatal vitamin. I can't remember what it's called that you can take before you even start the conception process that can almost completely eliminate the possibility somehow. It like fixes the genetic mutation. And then a bunch of other women, I haven't gotten a chance to do this yet myself. A bunch of the women in this group were chatting with me and telling me that the ones that did have sons with this uh, hypospadias condition did the, what's it called? The 23andMe like saliva test that you can just get over the counter because the like hospital genetic screening was not covered by their insurance and mine wasn't either. I checked and that almost all of them, even the ones that their sons did not present with hypospadias, like if they had several sons and one had it, but not the rest, they almost all presented with the mutation of that gene so that they're like a carrier of the gene. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That's super interesting. I also find it 
really frustrating that the genetic screening is not covered by insurance. Oh, they told me that it was going to be something like $50,000 just to get this like specific blood work done. Like it was the most expensive medical test I'd ever heard of in my life. Okay. And how much was 23 and me? Oh yeah. What is it? Like 50 bucks, 60 bucks. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I thought it was kind of an interesting little hack that people were telling me. I thought I should share about it. Definitely. I will continue to share that. <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's super interesting. Yeah. Please send me the article. I'd love to read it. I totally will. Yeah. Just to backtrack, because it was just a random question that I had. Did you, do you know if you had any symptoms from having the ovarian cyst? So that's like the crazy thing. Every time I would get an ultrasound, someone would be, would be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Should I not press down? Like, are you in pain? And I'd be like, no, like I, they're like, this has clearly been here for like a many number of years. And we can't believe it's not hurting you. Like by all accounts, it should be hurting you. It should be pressing on nerves. It should be causing a lot of complications. And I kept wondering, like, maybe when they take it out, I'm suddenly going to be like, God, I've never felt better. Like I didn't even notice that it was hurting me, but I'm, I, I thought, oh, maybe I'm going to lose a ton of weight or something. No, nothing happened. No idea why. The only thing that I think it made a difference in what it, I couldn't, no symptoms, but it did. What's the word I'm looking for here? restrict the growth of the baby. He was really, really, really small the whole time, even for just not just for being early, like his fetal size, the entire pregnancy was like in the one and 2%. He's still only the 2% two, 2 of his like average size and weight and all that. And I think it was because he was so, so, so tightly squished to one little corner of my abdomen because the this like mass was taking up like most of the other half of it that makes sense and yeah oh and when they removed it they did have to remove the entire ovary so a person who was born with four ovaries currently only has one wow the yeah isn't that kind of bold <laughs> i know i know they, they insist it doesn't affect your fertility even though it sounds like it would right so okay then another question I'm just like randomly thinking of questions. Sorry if I'm bouncing around. So was your son planned or was he a surprise? Oh, he was a super surprise. <laughs> he was a COVID surprise. A lovely surprise though. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. Let me back up. Actually, this is like an interesting extra fee story, right? Okay. Sure. So at one point in college, my period had been late. So I'm obviously like freaking out and I take a pregnancy test as a person would do. I don't know if you've heard about this from other people, maybe, but the pregnancy tests were all positive. So I'm freaking out. I'm like changing my life plans. I'm looking for a doctor, all this jazz. I show up to get an ultrasound because they're like, oh, this is clearly like a high risk thing. We need to find like a plan and a team and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, you are absolutely not pregnant. Like there is nothing in here. There isn't even a trace of anything in here why are all these pee sticks positive that like, we've never seen this. These are supposed to have, you know, the box says like a 99.9% .9 accuracy. Right. Right. And if you so, multiple. Oh, I'd taken like 30 of them. Like, cause I was so shocked. I was like, just buying them left and right. Like one of every brand. And the weird thing was that they weren't every single one of them positive. They'd be like three out of four positive. So I'm thinking like, oh, I must be like really, really early. And some of them aren't detecting it. And some of them are, 
I'm not really sure what's going on. I'll go to the doctor and find out. The doctor's not really sure what's going on either. So they say, I don't know. That's really weird. Maybe you had like a really, 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 really early miscarriage or something like that. Sorry, we can't really do much for you. You seem to be fine. And then, you know, eventually like a week later or something, I got my period. And I, and I was like, but the thing was, I was really sad about it. Right. I was excited. I was like, Oh, wow, I'm pregnant. This is crazy. And then I was like, Oh, that sucks. <laughs> so kind of from then on out, I was like, well, clearly I kind of wanted to be pregnant. So I, I, I wouldn't say I started trying to have a baby, but I would definitely say I wasn't trying very hard not to either. If you catch my drift. Yeah. So that lasted for like three or four years until I randomly found out I was pregnant. So I don't know if I have really low fertility odds or what the situation is there, but something interesting that I found out, I had always wondered what was up with all those false positives, right? Mm -hmm. Rewind to, this was maybe like 2017, something like that. That year at youth rally, I'm sure people have talked to you about youth rally before the summer camp. So amazing. Yeah. I'll do a quick plug for it. Youth Rally. It's the best in the world. It's a summer camp for kids with bowel and bladder conditions of any sort. So of course, anybody with extra fee would be totally qualified. I've been going since I was 11. We are a completely volunteer run organization and we are run by adults living with the same conditions as the kids. So it's a super cool, like peer mentorship situation. So I've been a camper since I was 11. Now I'm an adult. I've been a counselor just about every year. So this is kind of provides a really unique environment for rare conditions to get together and talk about weird things that we might not otherwise notice, such as I'm telling them all the story about like what happened to me. I don't know what's up with these false pregnancy tests and two other girls chime in and say, no way. This exact same thing happened to me. And we also just blew it off because the doctors said, yeah, I don't know. That's really weird. We were just relieved that we didn't have to worry about it and went about our lives. And I'm like, no way. That can't be a coincidence. Like that is too weird of a situation that none of us have ever heard before to happen to like three different women. So then we get to talking and we're talking about how we've all had different like thoughts about like, you know, theorizing what this could have been at night and how we're all like totally convinced. Like, even though everyone says there should be no reason that like our pee must be whack, right? There's something wrong with our pee that's triggering these positive pregnancy tests when we're definitely not pregnant. So we were like, you know what? This is like a rare opportunity. There's so many of us here with the same catheter system. Why don't we just all literally take a bunch of them? So I went to Target and I bought like 30 pregnancy tests and I brought them back and we did a whole real research science experiment. And I wrote on each stick, I could send you the pictures and everything, the people's names, their condition, exactly what their like bladder was augmented with. I even did a couple controls of people whose bladder was never augmented. And I was exactly right. Even men who had augmented bladders peed a positive pregnancy stick like two out of three times. That's insane. That is so cool. Yeah. So something about the chemical makeup of our pee and the doctors haven't figured out exactly what it is yet triggers a false positive pregnancy test, which I immediately was like, well, this is really cool science. And I wrote up a whole report. I could send you the whole report. I wrote up this whole like real like research thing. And I sent it out to some doctors who said that this is really cool. Let's look into it further. And one doctor repeated the study at her, you know, hospital in, I think in 
in LA and she just published it this year, even though it was a couple years later, she just got back to me like yesterday and said she is publishing this as a featured like study in the urological association conference, this huge international conference in Chicago this spring. And she wants me to come and present it with her. Cause like it was my initial research and she wants to include me. So I'm super excited about it because the thing about it is it's like small and kind of funny that we had a bunch of men pee on pregnancy tests, but realistically, like urologists don't know this information and the people doing these procedures on young girls in the pre-op, like paperwork and discussions should let them know about the side effects because it literally is like a severe, like life trauma experience, especially for a population of people who are dealing oftentimes with like complications and potentially grief around infertility from their whole life long. Yeah. So to have false hope like that, or, you know, alternately like unnecessary trauma like that could just be totally avoidable if they know that you know, store-bought over-the-counter pregnancy tests are just never going to be accurate. And to just not even just skip that whole step altogether. If you think you're pregnant, you need to go get like a blood test or an ultrasound. Right. Wow. That is so cool. I thought it was cool too. I felt like a real scientist. Yeah. 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 I, we're going to have to make a list of stuff that you're sending me at this point. (laughs) Okay. No problem. Wow. That's amazing. That's really cool. I know. I thought so too. Yeah. And so to kind of switch topics a little bit here, because we've kind of talked about a lot about fertility and the whole pregnancy and everything. And that was one of the reasons why I was excited to talk to you because I literally have not seen anybody else yet so far who's had these types of issues and gotten pregnant and been able to carry to term. I haven't had the opportunity to speak to anyone who has. So that was one of the reasons. But... I also saw that you used to travel a lot as well. Is that true? Definitely. Yeah, I love to travel. Uh, I'd like to travel again as soon as my toddler allows it. It's my favorite thing in the world to do. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to hear, you know, what your experience has been like, you know, traveling and having to to do cathing and enemas and being able to keep track of like, this is when I need to do it. And this is, you know making sure you're in a place that allows you to be able to stick to your medical, you know, regimen. Yeah, absolutely. So here's my philosophy and here's the thing. When you're traveling, there's a lot of unpredictable factors and sometimes it's not going to be the same as at home. And to me, it's worth it. And to me, it is all a matter of mentality So for example, like, and I know this is embarrassing, but this is like a a medical topic, like, you know, podcast. So I'm not really that embarrassed. That's like the idea, right? So I don't have a sphincter. And so from time to time throughout my life, if I'm feeling a little iffy or if I'm having an off day, I'm going to crap my pants and it's a big problem, right? This has been a problem my whole life. I can cry about it and let it affect my day and feel all sad. And I can stay home and never do anything. And I can poop my pants here on the couch, or I can poop my pants riding a camel through the desert on the Pakistani border. Which one is a cooler story? You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So 
Has there been issues? Absolutely. Would I do it again? Every single time for sure. It's, 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 it depends where you're going. You know what I mean? When you're traveling, I can tell you my best stories and I can tell you my worst stories and I can tell you the easiest places to travel with medical issues and the, the least easy that I have done. (laughs) It's such a broad topic. I'd almost don't even know where to begin. Yeah. Well, why don't we start with what are things that you think about when you're planning to travel? Totally. So usually if I'm traveling somewhere, I am a rough in it kind of gal myself. I'm a real adventurer. I like to backpack. I like to pack light. I'm going to be hiking a lot, things like that. So like packing space is limited. And I just almost have to be aware that like a third of my luggage is going to be like catheters and it's fine. I just have to know that. And I have to know how to be a light packer and make do with what I've got, which is fine. I can do laundry while I'm there. It's whatever. I actually have like a method if I am trying to shove as many catheters as I can, where, and some people will try to tell you that they try to like order things abroad and blah, 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 blah. I'm never in one place long enough to do that. And I honestly personally think it's unreliable and sketchy. And shipping things across borders, I've found to be really difficult. I've had friends who have tried it and it's gotten stuck at the border and then they're screwed and they have to go to the hospital. It's a different language just to get an order of medical supplies, yada, yada. Personal recommendation is to bring as many as you're going to need. Personally, again, like I've been saying, I don't have a lot of like chronic infection problems. Like I know a lot of future people do. And every time I say this, I never want anybody to mistake it as like bad medical advice. But I am a big fan of washing my catheters. It's a lifesaver. I put them in boiling water and I've never had a problem with it in my life. When I was backpacking in India, I actually had my backpack stolen. Luckily, I had several, like a handful of catheters left in my fiance's backpack. So I had to go the other half of the trip with like five catheters. So I bought a kettle and everywhere I went, I boiled a bottle of water. You can't trust any of the water there. So literally the bottled water, I would buy it. I would pour it in the kettle and I would be making it in little teapots, teapots of boiled catheters. And I would then use that water to do the enema with as well. Wow. So you kind of have to get a little bit resourceful. Um, Yeah, I'd let it cool down and then use that like cleansed water for my enemas recycling, you know? Yeah. Because you don't want to put the bacteria straight in you. Honestly, I was sick the whole time anyways, because the food is so, so, so sketchy in the whole country. The thing about packing your medical supplies and knowing that it's going to be so much of your luggage is it's like a blessing and a curse. Like it kind of prevents you from overpacking, but then, you know, you had to make sacrifices about what you bring. But the nice part is you always know, well, in terms of catheters, at least on the way back, you've used almost all the catheters. So now you automatically have the space for all of the crap you buy while you're abroad to bring back with you. It's actually an ingenious (laughs) space and time-saving strategy. Right. Oh, that's a good point. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm thinking, what do we want to hear? We're coming up on an hour already. So I'm trying to think of like what stories we want to include. Do you have like favorite stories you want to share? 
Yes, I have so many favorite stories. Oh, I can tell you one thing that a lot of people have actually thought was really interesting, especially for people who cap or have ostomies. Mm -hmm. When I was in Japan, this was so neat. They're like a culture that is very, very, very focused on respect, uh, like for all people. It's super disability friendly overall, super, super accommodating in terms of the culture, the people, and like the physical structures of everywhere. There are actually in most like big cities and large public bathrooms, stalled and private sealed bathrooms just for ostomates, ostomates and people with catheters. They have a symbol kind of like, it's like a person with a little plus sign on their abdomen. And it means this is a bathroom just for people with ostomies. And I would cap in there. I can send you a picture of them. They're so freaking cool. Uh, It is a like waist high level station where you can like put your supplies and sort them out with something that looks kind of like a um like a urinal but a lot more like fancy looking like a lot more kind of like respectable and it's like always like this sealed private like large like a handicap stall but like a very bougie one and they're not like uncommon like they're everywhere they're in all the train stations and they have like all of the toilets have like discreet noisemakers on them that'll play little music and sound effects to prevent the sound of splashing and things like that. So anytime I could cap in an ostomy bathroom station, I took the chance to do so. That's amazing. I have never heard of that. It was super duper cool to see. I was super, I felt really like represented and excited. Yeah. I actually met several people like coming out of the bathroom and I, they'd be like, oh, like you have an ostomy too. And I'd be like, kind of, I don't have one anymore, but like I have something similar and we'd like hit it off. That's so cool. What an interesting way to like meet people too. Yeah, it was really cool. Let's see. Okay. I can tell you, I can tell you a good story. Okay. I got one. So me and this friend of mine, I studied abroad in Japan in, in the spring of 2016. And for the most part, Japan was like the least problematic place I've ever been because I said it's so accommodating. But like I said earlier, most of my good stories involve me having a tragic, tragic day crap in my pants. <laughs> okay. And on this particular lovely spring day, me and my good friend, Sarah, well, I take that back. She wasn't my good friend. I didn't know her that well at all. I had only met her like that week, but she became my good friend later. Okay. On our very first outing together ever, me and this girl who seemed really nice and I wanted to befriend, but I didn't know her that well, decided to go on a hike because I said I really like hiking. And we took a cable car up to the top of this mountain and said we would hike down it because she was kind of a novice hiker and we didn't have all that much time. So we take the cable car up and then the cable car place closes. So like the only way down is hiking. So we're hiking down and it took us forever to get there. It's getting kind of late and... She tells me that she can read Japanese. This is another girl studying abroad. She's not a Japanese girl, but she tells me that she's a Japanese language major and she can totally read it. Okay. I believe her because I don't know her that well. Oh, okay. And we get halfway down and she's like telling me the sign to be following. And finally, I'm like, Sarah, this doesn't really look like it's going where it's supposed to be going. Like, This is taking much longer than the like English sign at the top said it was going to take. Like, are you sure this is the right way? And she says, yeah, this either says exit to train station or 
very nice shrine and statue. They're really similar. It's hard to explain. She was telling me basically that it either said exit or like something completely different, but it, you know, they're really, really close. <laughs> and I was like, really, really close. Oh my God. Like the sun's going to go down. Our phones have both died. Like by now we've been here for hours. And then of course, like as these things always tend to happen in the middle of um, me with this girl, I hardly know with absolutely no phone. Apparently she does not read or speak Japanese. And the sun is going down on this mountain that we've never been to hours away from the town we are staying in. I have the most disastrous, like infant blowout out of nowhere, like throw the pants away disaster level accident, like of the year. And I'm so embarrassed because I'm like hiking down this mountain, like butt to face with this girl. And I have to go like hide in the bushes. And so like, I'm like, I'm circling back to like this whole like mentality thing, right? Like you can cry about it or you can do the best you can with the situation. And she's like, Hey, um, I know you said you needed to pull over and use the bathroom. Like, are you okay? Are you okay? She's like, like, it's becoming awkward. Like, I'm not sure what to do at this point. Like I'm freaking out. Like I'm literally half naked in these bushes. Like I have taken these pants, done the best cleanup I can and just thrown them freaking down the rest of the mountain. Like there's no one around for miles and it's like dusk. <laughs> and now I have to come out and meet this girl half naked, covered in poop and scars and exposed guts that she's never seen before right and explain why i am naked in the bush right now and why i don't know what the hell we're gonna do about this and so i come out and i well you know i like kind of come out and i pop my little head out and i'm like sarah listen we have a situation here and it's a long story but but the gist is i have some serious medical problems i have had to throw my pants away I am covered in poop. I do not know what I'm going to do. I am so sorry. This is so embarrassing. I'm just going to drop dead right here on the mountain. Just leave me here to die. <laughs> and you know what she says? She says, hang on, hang on, hang on. We got this. I'm going to go find some leaves or something. Like, it's all good. I'm going to go find help. I'm like, really? You're going to go find help? So I'm thinking, okay, so basically you're telling me you're going to abandon me and you're never going to find me again because you can't even read these damn signs. <laughs> So she disappears for the longest time. I'm doing like the best I can with these leaves and stuff. And she comes back and she's like, oh, you'll never believe what I found. And I was like, a bathroom? And she was like, oh, no, 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 not that good. But pretty good. <laughs> and she hands me the contents of an abandoned homeless person's tent and like clothes and towels and all this nasty like sweaty like leftover like oh. clearly abandoned in the woods homeless person like camp out stuff <laughs> but like what else am I gonna do really right. so I literally clean myself off with some like abandoned homeless person's towel and make like clothes out of these like leftover clothes <laughs> And I'm so grateful for her being such a good spirit because she's just cracking up about this. Like she isn't phased at all. Like this is just a fun time to her. And she's like a really wonderful friend for like doing this for me. And so I'm like embarrassed, but we're laughing the whole way down. And finally, God damn, finally, she was right all along. That was the way to the exit. It was just super, super, super long. So we get to the train station, but like Japan is a very 
kind of like a modest place. Like you can't just be walking around in homeless people's <sighs> smelly pants. Like that's mortifying. They don't even like it if you're walking and eating like with your hands a bag of chips. That's like gross to them. Like <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I can't get on the bus and drive like two hours home. Like this is so, oh my, like I'm panicking. I'm like, what am I going to do? She's like, she literally pulls a super like spy move. There's all these people standing around the, the train station and I can see the bathroom there. And this, like, I'm in full panic mode and she just takes charge. She's like, listen, this is what I'm going to do. Those, like, teenagers standing around there, I'm going to create a diversion. I'm going to go talk to them. I'm going to lure them around the corner. You're going to hide in this bush. And then when I have successfully lured them around the corner, you run into the bathroom and wait for me there. Because we don't have phones or anything. Like, we're just making a plan like freaking Scooby-Doo. We had to stick to it, but it's time to split up, gang. And I hope she's going to return with the Scooby snack, but I just don't really know. <laughs> she like gets these people to like show her directions to something. And I run into the bathroom, God bless. And there's the super private ostomy stall that I'm like thanking the gods for where I clean myself up really good and throw this pair of pants away. Cause it is so nasty. And God bless her. She comes back with like the cutest pair of pants that I have to this day. And she's like, she's like, oh no, it's good. Like, you don't have to pay me back. Like on me, you're good. And so now honestly, like the day ended up fantastic. I came out of it with a new friend and a pretty sweet pair of pants. That's amazing. I know it was, it was good. I hope that my host mom didn't think it was weird that I came home in a totally different pair of pants than I left with that day. <laughs> maybe, maybe she didn't notice. Hopefully she just thought I was like an enthusiastic shopper. Oh, yeah. For sure. A pretty amazing story. Yeah, it was it was it was definitely like a a, a funny day. Yeah. That's how you can tell a real friend. That's kind of how I feel about it too. Like if somebody was going to have issue with that, then that was kind of like the friend disqualifier right off the bat. Yes. Like, oh, we not wasted time. Yeah. I think by the time you even got to the bathroom, and like she had gone off to as the distraction, like I feel like you could have already trusted that she would come back. Like oh, she put sure. you on the mountain. Like she actually came through. <laughs> I know, I know. What a real friend. I should really call her. I haven't talked to her in a minute. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. Well, unless you have another short story, I think we're kind of out of time. No problem. I had no concept of what your time frame was, so I was just going. Perfect. No, this has been fantastic. I feel like I learned a ton of stuff. I'm excited to read all of the things you're going to send me. Yeah, this has been great. Yeah, anytime. It was so good to meet you. I've been meaning to get in contact with you for a while, but I've just been, you know, busy with the toddler and all that jazz. Yeah, no, no worries. Thank you so much for making time and sharing all about you. <laughs> Oh, thanks. I hope it's at least helpful to like one person out there. Who knows? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Body Talk with Bex. I hope you enjoyed hearing everything from Jada and hearing some of her hilarious stories and are hopefully inspired to get out and live life a little bit. Please leave me a review and hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast at. 
If you have any more questions for me, please feel free to send them to me. I will be stockpiling them until I have enough for another Ask Me Anything episode. If you want to further support this podcast, please join me on Patreon, and I will be announcing the details soon about the new Patreon tier features that will be starting at the beginning of the new year. Lastly, if you would like to share your story or know someone who would, I can be contacted through my website, www.bodytalkwithbex.com or on social media. Thank you so much for listening.